Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Zach Rash, CEO and co-founder of Coco, a food delivery robot that's raised $60 million in funding. Zach, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, so I uh, kind of came up with the idea with Coco with my co-founder, Brad, when we were at UCLA. So I'm from the Bay Area, and I moved down to Los Angeles to go to school at UCLA, and I started studying mechanical engineering and especially coming from the Bay Area, right? Everyone was building apps in high school and there's a lot of software around you, which is a really magical place to grow up. But I was really interested in building things for the physical world rather than building, you know, social media apps or games and a lot of the kind of things you saw people working on. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I really wanted to build stuff in the physical world and had a great opportunity to do a lot of that at, at UCLA with Brad. Nice. And a few other quick questions we'd like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, I was thinking about this. You know, I think this might be a cliche answer now, but probably Sam Altman, who's Sam's our, our largest investor. And so I've gotten to know him a lot more recently. And he's so unique. He's extremely authentic. He's super thoughtful. He's, he's obviously a really smart guy. But I think like one thing that really stands out about him is he is just like zero noise. He is like straight to the point. He's very first principled on every single thing you talk about. And he just like, you can tell when you talk to him, he's just genuinely interested in building things that he's excited about and that he thinks are you know good things to build. And everything outside of that, he just kind of ignores. And that really stands out as kind of the macro environment's changed a lot over the last you know, year, year and a half. Uh, you hear a lot of people kind of switch their opinions about what you should do and kind of pitching a playbook of how to run a business, how to start a business. And as if it's one size fit all. And, and, and Sam is kind of the opposite of that, right? He has the YC playbook that he spread for, for many, many years, but with open AI, I mean, he said this himself, he's kind of gone the exact opposite direction. So he's really thoughtful. If you have to ask him a question, it's never going to be some generic startup advice. And I think that makes him super unique. And what's the backstory there? How'd you end up getting connected with Sam? Because I think any founder listening would wants to work with Sam Altman at this point. Yeah. One of our first investors was a guy named Kevin Mahaffey. Kevin started Lookout, which is a mobile cybersecurity company when he was you know, my age, like when he was graduating from school. And uh, so he's one of our first major investors and he's been super helpful. I think he spent some time as like a visiting partner or something at, at YC. And so he had, you know, had a relationship with Sam from that. And then he introduced us in our seed round and Sam did like half our seed round. And then he led our series A. Nice. And what about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? Yeah, I was trying to think of one because I don't know if this one's cliche, but the Elon Musk biography by Ashley Vance. I just can't pick any other book because I specifically remember the moment reading that book. I think I was, it was my first year of college. And it was like winter break. And I obviously knew who Elon Musk was and followed some of the stuff and thought it was cool. But that book, I think, was the first time where I read it. And I was just so, you know, like the scope of what he was trying to accomplish and coming from a place where he didn't know, you know, he didn't have like a background in these sort of industries and he kind of just conquered them. I remember reading that and just being like, that sounds like the hardest possible 
thing you could start. And so I thought it was really inspiring. And I read that and I was really interested in autonomous vehicles. And so I actually read that book and then immediately sent an email to one of my professors or a professor at UCLA who I knew was interested in doing autonomous vehicle research. And I wrote him this long, long email about how I want to run the autonomous vehicles research lab and all the reasons you should trust me with it and how much money I would need. And he basically just said yes. And that kind of kicked off the whole thing that is now Coco was basically from that email you know, all those years ago. And that email, I literally like put the book down and wrote that email. Uh, so <laughs> it clearly like impacted my life a lot because it's just such a cool story. That's awesome. And, and that's a perfect segue to dive deeper into the company. So obviously this is audio only, and I think your product is very visual. But when I tried to describe it there in the intro, I said it's a food delivery robot. Is that how you describe it or how would you describe it? Yes, yeah, so we need robots to deliver food. We also do groceries, but it's mostly food. And our goal is to do that at about 10 times lower cost than is possible today. And the reason for that is I'm sure most people who are listening are aware of these sort of problems, but I'll, I'll kind of go over them briefly. The food delivery as a service is a bit broken today. You basically have three sides here. You have merchants, drivers, and customers. And all three sides are like not super happy with the state of the industry. And it's not because the delivery companies, these marketplaces are bad by any means. It's an extremely difficult business and it's really expensive to make it work. And so you get this dynamic where merchants have a 30% commission, right? And they're operating at single digit percent margins. And so they can't afford a 30% tax. So what they do is they raise the price of their food, obviously, so that they don't lose money on deliveries. And that makes it extremely expensive for the customers. And because obviously these marketplaces have to charge a huge amount of fees on top of it to pay for the drivers in addition. And then there's this constant like trying to make all three sides of this marketplace happy. And the way that that's kind of settled today in 2023 is at a pretty high cost. And, you know, I think a lot of these businesses are becoming really sensitive to that now at a time where I think the consumer spend is going to be a little bit more tapered. So we're really trying to fix this problem. And these businesses are all looking at automation, how to do this. And it's kind of like, you know, people have been talking about self-driving cars or robots doing deliveries for a very long time. I think if you asked, you know, a handful of our customers or our potential customers, you know, would you guys use robots that massively reduce the cost? I think everyone would say, yes, we're looking at that. Uh, when is it going to be available? So I think it's always been a matter of like, when is that tech going to be usable to us? And when is it going to impact our businesses? And so Coco's core approach is that we're really focused on building a product that's useful today to businesses. And like I said, it's mostly restaurants. And we do this through creating really low cost hardware and then using remote drivers. People can drive these robots from home or from anywhere in the world. And they're actually piloting these. And this allows us to scale the service to merchants and we can do it profitably. And so we can really focus on building the infrastructure so we can keep scaling up over time. And then as you kind of build that fleet and that infrastructure, right? Um, think like Tesla Autopilot, this we can incrementally automate driving over time because we have all that data and we have a you know, profitable business that, that we're starting to scale. So if I'm an Uber Eats driver and I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see one of these, do I just want to like kick it over and, and knock it down? <laughs> Is this going to like put me out of work or what's the general driver sentiment when they see these? It's a really interesting like comms problem because you know we have to be really careful about making sure that people understand the value and what we're actually trying to accomplish here. We're taking short distance trips that drivers will tell other drivers to never take because they're not profitable trips. So these are the trips where they'll make the least amount of money. Consumers will tip way less because, you know, it's not going very far. So they don't feel like they should. So these are like the least desirable trips. And it's also 
kind of a segment of trips that, you know, Uber or DoorDash doesn't make money on, particularly in really high cost of living areas. But it's a huge percentage of the deliveries. You know, I don't know, like half the deliveries that happen in LA, for example, are you know, roughly walking distance. And when you talk about short deliveries, what does that mean exactly? Is it like one mile, two miles, five miles? What's the range? Yeah, we do sub two miles. So uh, anything from zero to mm, Okay, got it. And then what's it look like if I'm a consumer? Is there a Cocoa app that I'm interfacing with? Or am I just going directly to the restaurant, buying from them, and then they're dispatching the robots and I have no idea yeah, that Cocoa exists, at least on the front end? Both. We do have an app where we put all of our different restaurant partners on there and then customers can order directly, directly from that app. It's much lower cost than if you order from one of the other marketplaces. But most of our deliveries happen through either one of the big marketplaces or, you know, by ordering directly from the restaurant. So we just plug in, the, we're kind of agnostic. We plug in the service wherever it's most useful, but most of that volume is going to come through like existing marketplaces. Oh, okay. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And can you give us any idea of the numbers and the scale and the, the growth that you're seeing today? Yes. I mean, we've done hundreds of thousands of deliveries. We have some new partnerships recently that we can't talk about yet, but those are scaling really quickly. So we're basically doubling volume every week and we expect to hold that trend for a bit. The market of last mile delivery is so massive that from our perspective, we essentially have infinite demand. So it's really about like how fast can we scale to get all of those deliveries while maintaining healthy margins. I mean, obviously that's super important these days is, is the cost of capital has gone up a lot. And we have a very profitable, you know, fundamental delivery structure. So we're basically trying to add robots to the fleet as fast as we can while holding a margin profile. So right now that's about doubling every week. And uh, you'll try to hold that for the rest of this year, or at least for, for a portion of it. And how many cities are you in today? We're mostly in Los Angeles. We do have a small operation in Texas. So we have Houston and Austin, but most of our energy is on Los Angeles, at least for the remainder of this year. Are there any regulatory headaches? I remember when you know Bird went to market a few years ago, and I think they were also from Santa Monica, if I remember right, and local politicians were getting really pissed off. There was all of this drama. Are you seeing any drama like that and any headaches like that? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, right, that was the common question that came up is, is this going to be scooters all over again? Actually, one of the first people we hired was the head of government relations because we knew this was going to be you know, big challenge. I think like Bird, a lot of scooter companies kind of took like an Uber-like playbook, which, you know, I understand why they did that. And a lot of the team came from those businesses. But the final difference here is you do have to operate on sidewalks with like a hardware device. I mean, that is so clearly subject to like local city regulation, whereas, you know, cars on the road is a much broader and uh, more difficult, you know, kind of gray area to manage. But if you're like, you know, put a scooter out on the sidewalk and, you know, people have to go and pay money on a ticket to scooter off the sidewalk in a city. Like the city clearly has pretty strong jurisdiction over that. So very early on, we started working with the cities, but unlike scooters, our vehicles are parked at merchant property. They go to do their delivery. They come back, they're housed indoors at night. So it's much more orderly and less scattered across the city. Like you would see with, with scooters, but also like we're helping local businesses. And that was kind of a key angle that was missing in with micromobility, where we have like a very strong voice in the markets we enter because there's these local businesses that say, hey, I'm paying 30% commissions to these delivery marketplaces, especially during COVID, right? Like this is the only way we can make money and it's not profitable for us, these sort of fees. So that kind of accelerated the process quite a bit. And then like in cities like Los Angeles and Santa Monica, they have pretty aggressive sustainability goals. And a huge part of our mission is to, you know, take these deliveries, you know, away from cars. 
there's an insane, there's like a million deliveries a day across the US probably that are happening within walking distance of a restaurant. Those are being done in really old gas powered cars. And that's definitely not a future that you know, we want to build or the cities want to build. So we're helping work with them to get cars off the road, reduce the you know need for parking, especially in these commercial sounds and make delivery a lot more sustainable. So those are a lot of the kind of tailwinds that have made cities work really well with us. We have a great relationship with all the cities. Makes sense. So it's not the scorched earth approach that Uber took when they went to market? No. Uh, yeah, we have a super, super good relationship. We developed the permits for for how this would work with Santa Monica. And then after that, we did the same thing with the city of Los Angeles. And and they've been an awesome partner to shape these regs. And, and the, the same regulation has been adopted by a lot of other cities and states now too. And yeah, it's like, it works for us as a business and it works for the city. And I think everyone's everyone's happy with it. And so I don't think we have to be very combative and I don't think it would work for this type of business. And let's say I own an Indian place, so Brett's Indian restaurant. Can't think of a clever name right now. So uh, <laughs> let's just imagine that. Am I buying the actual hardware from you? And then do I own the robot? Or what does that look like? Or am I assigned a dedicated robot? What does that look like? Yeah, so we just do a service model. We charge per delivery. And then how many vehicles you get is dependent on your volume. So if you do like a delivery a day or something like that, right? Like you're probably going to, when that delivery comes in, you're a vehicle that's you know, somewhere in the neighborhood is going to stop by when, when, when it expects your food to be prepared. But if you do, you know, hundreds of deliveries a day from your location, you know, the exact number of vehicles you have at any given time is going to change, but you're going to have a pretty substantial fleet there. And for those type of businesses, we help a lot by giving them kind of like a taxi line. So the second the food's ready, it can be loaded into a robot and the robot will take off and uh, work its way to the customer. As opposed to, you know, DoorDash or Uber today, where the drivers match the order and that might not be the order that's ready first. That might not be the driver that's there first. And so you have this kind of matching problem that can cause a lot of congestion at the restaurant, especially if you try and take care of your, you know, your guests that are that are dining in. So we help a lot with the operational flow of getting food out and getting it to the customer. So yeah, just and then we just bill you for delivery and it's a much cheaper rate than you can get from any other service. And talk to us about competitive landscape or you know, specifically other companies that are doing something similar with delivery robots. Uh, I feel like here in San Francisco, every couple of months, I'll I'll be at a restaurant and just zooming by the sidewalk, I'll see something like this. And it sounds like it's not yours if you're not in SF yet. But talk to us about that competitive landscape and who else is trying to do this. I guess I'll break it down into three different categories of companies. So the first is, you know, the companies that are more, you know, like the self-driving car companies. There's a couple that are, you know, delivery only, but still kind of a similar approach. It's a vehicle that's meant for the roads. It's federally regulated you know, have LIDARs, like your lasers all over to help with, um, you know, understanding its environment. And so these, this is a kind of a category of company that's spending billions of dollars on R&D to really like make a fully self-driving vehicle. And that's the category that's been around for a pretty long time. Um, and I'm sure, you know, especially in San Francisco, you probably see these all the time. The second category of company would be the companies that are trying to scale across college campuses. So not really doing like dense urban deliveries, but really like licensing vehicles to a school, a college campus, and then doing like dining hall deliveries. And then the other categories like us, where we're trying to, you know, start with where the largest problem is, which is in these kind of high cost living, dense urban markets. So we're very uninterested in the in the campus approach. I think it's such a massive oversimplification of the product and the technology needed to develop that I don't think it really helps you solve the like difficult challenges of operating in like a Chicago or a Los Angeles or San Francisco. And I also don't really think you're solving a problem. You know, I was a student very recently and I don't think I ever was at the library thinking like, wow, if only I could get food delivered from, you know, the cafeteria hundred feet away, 
like I think it's a novelty and people use it. So I think there's a business there. It's just not a problem that I really want to solve. If you solve delivery in Los Angeles, of course, you can solve the problem of bringing it on campus somewhere like UCLA. But if you try to simplify your problem and say, I'm going to stay on the campus, then you're not bringing food from off campus to on campus, which would be great, right? When everything's closed on campus. So I just, I just don't think it's solving a real problem. So we've kind of avoided that. But I understand why companies do it because it's a much easier go to market and it's super scalable. And I'm sure universities pay a lot for the kind of novelty factor. And then the big multi billion dollar R&D approaches, I just don't think is necessary for delivery. I think everyone took that approach with self-driven cars because they're not really a great alternative. I, I think Tesla's approach makes the most sense, but Tesla's not really a self-driven car company. They're, they're a car company, so they're kind of inherently positioned better once you have a profitable car business. But with food delivery, you can travel at much lower speeds. You can use sidewalks. You don't have to have passengers in it. There's all these simplifications that allow remotely driving the vehicles to actually work and to be safe and to be reliable and to create a valuable service to our customers. And that's a much easier place to start from because it forces you to build all of these other difficult, complicated, you know, infrastructure products like routing and a reliable vehicle and, you know, how you work with the restaurants and that whole workflow. You know, there's a lot that goes into running this business that's more like fleet and asset management than it is autonomy. And I think you're going to be stuck on like a multi-billion dollar, decade-long R&D process and you won't even think about those challenges. So I just don't think that's the fastest path to getting this, to getting this out there. So we're, we're kind of, we're much more towards like the operational, let's create a business, let's scale it with customers. And then we think that's also the best path to winning autonomy long-term because if you have the biggest fleet and you're generating cash from that fleet, you know, back to the Tesla autopilot example, that's the best position to be in to, to win the kind of long tail autonomy race. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what about when you start to get outside of these dense urban cities and get into areas where it's more spread out? Does the model still work or does it have to be completely changed then? Yeah, it will, it will work eventually. You need a faster vehicle just because everything's going to be much more spread out, right? So like 10 mile deliveries in Los Angeles just don't happen. Whereas that might be the normal delivery distance in a, in a suburb. So we're really focused on scaling to the major urban centers, you know, both in Europe, Asia and, and in the U.S., first before we start going into the kind of suburbs. And we're not really interested in creating, you know, a marketplace of consumers to compete against the big marketplace companies. We really want to be good at manufacturing vehicles and operating those vehicles, you know, in kind of real complicated city environments. So if you look at DoorDash, right, they started in the suburbs and then built their way up into the city, which is a great strategy for them because there was as much competition in the suburbs. But for us, it's like, that's where a huge chunk of the deliveries are happening. And so it's like, we can have a simpler, slower product that solves that problem before we have to make it faster and go into the kind of suburbs. So yeah, eventually, but it'll be a couple of years before we start looking at that. And then what about the actual people who are driving the robots? Where are they typically based? Like, are you outsourcing it to somewhere like the Philippines? So there's like cost efficiency there, or is everyone sitting there in, in Santa Monica running the robots? People can be anywhere. We started with, it was basically, <laughs> it started with my co-founder, Brad. He was we were in Westwood and he like yelled out of our apartment window and said, does anyone want to help us drive robots? Because we got to the point where, you know, the two of us couldn't do all of the deliveries. 
And so we recruited basically everyone on on Roebling in Westwood uh, to be our first robot drivers. And then they referred their friends. And all of a sudden, we had uh, university students all over the country that were driving these. And so now it's scaled much more broadly. You can work from anywhere. We have both like a call center type model and like a work from home type model. And we really focus on, you know, like that's one of our core competencies is really running the operations and the reliability of these, this kind of pilot operation. It's not like some backup to autonomy. I mean, it is like the core product that we built a lot of functionality around. And there's a huge amount of cost advantage independent of where the pilots are, which is why it would make sense to have US pilots. And that's because we have like minimal downtime in our deliveries. So you can imagine if we're waiting for the customer to get the order out of the robot or if we're waiting for the restaurant to load the food. You know, average travel time is 10 minutes. So both of these tail ends can add up to being, you know, a couple minutes, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, or even longer. And that's a huge chunk of your cost just sitting there idle. And so what we're able to do is anytime the robot doesn't need to move, that pilot can go to a different delivery that needs them. And so we can be really efficient with context between pilots. And then the other advantage is this is a centralized pool of drivers. So you can imagine like food deliveries all happen at lunch and dinner. And if you're DoorDash or Uber, you need to hire drivers and get them on the road for those for that two-hour lunch peak and you know the three-hour, four-hour dinner peak. And then you do very little demand outside of those peaks. And that's kind of inherent with food delivery. So for us, if we have California and then Texas and then New York, you're basically staggering all of these peaks. And so your demand curve actually looks really flat globally. And so we can staff against that instead of having staff against Los Angeles and Texas and New York individually, we just do it on a global level. And so it's much easier to staff against. And then as a consumer, when my food arrives, am I like presented with a screen that asks me if I want to tip 10, 15, 20, 25%? Like how does tipping fit into all of this? The tips go to the pilots. You know, people usually actually tip. Obviously it's optional, but it does go to our pilots and people will usually actually do tip the robots. And we're pretty vocal about the fact that the pilot, right? So we're pretty vocal that there's driver behind it. So tipping it should be similar to any other service. But over time, as we increase the amount of autonomy in the fleet, you know, we imagine that would go away just because the leverage from one person would be pretty great, right? They might be controlling 10 robots at a single time. So the economics of that would be such that they really don't need tipping. And tipping model doesn't really make sense there. And probably a dumb question, right? What if they get stuck? <laughs> It happens. We have, I mean, two things we do to, to resolve that. We have local, you know, field operations associates that can recover and, and do anything that's needed. So this is like routine maintenance where they'll go inspect vehicles, right? They'll swap out the interior linings, make sure it's all clean. As a robot has some sort of hardware failure, they'll pick it up and bring it back to our centralized warehouse for inspection and repair. And so if a robot gets stuck, you know, that person can go recover it. But you try to minimize, obviously, the, the number of times this happens because food is super perishable. So you know, that field operations associate might not be able to get there within five or 10 minutes before the food gets cold. So we've created our own maps of the city. And so we have like robot, it's basically like walking directions, but the kind of robot derivative of that. So, you know, it takes into account stuff like cell tower infrastructure, curb cuts and like curb infrastructure the ease of crossing certain intersections and how long that takes to do pedestrian density. Right, you probably don't want to drive down Hollywood Boulevard at 7 p.m. on a Friday. Other times of the day, that might be okay to drive down that road, but definitely not at 7 p.m. on Friday. So, all of this is incorporated into our routing so that we can go as fast as possible, and so we you know, don't get stuck. We would minimize the probability of getting stuck. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. 
And if you reflect on the journey so far, what would you say has been the number one go-to-market challenge you'd face that you've overcome? The biggest one is our economic scale by you know coverage area, right? So if I go and launch a new city, I need a new warehouse, I need a new on-the-ground team there. We need technicians to do all the repairs of the robots. I need field operations associated to cover the market. And so you have to scale up like neighborhood by neighborhood. And like I said, you know, we're mainly focused on Los Angeles right now. So this makes enterprise sales very difficult. As you can imagine, right? If you have 20,000 stores across the country and I'm only going to do a sliver of them, it's kind of like, you know, come back to us when you can cover all of our stores. But then we have this problem of, well, I'm probably not going to cover all your stores for a very long time, but I'll really help you in these core, these core regions where the economics are particularly tough because the cost of the driver is really high. So working through that has been really challenging. And the reason it matters is because enterprise restaurants make up a huge chunk of the delivery market. So like at Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's or Chipotle, that's a huge chunk of the local deliveries that are happening on the marketplaces. So that's kind of the best customer for us. So, I mean, the way we've gotten around it is looking for those breakout local brands that, you know, the brands in each neighborhood that do disproportionate volume to the rest. And even though they only have one location or maybe two locations, those brands hold a lot of value and they have a lot of reputation in the industry, even if they're only one store. So really winning those and demonstrating value there goes a really long ways. And then finding the enterprise brands that are you know, extremely innovative and want to be on the leading edge of technology. You really only need one and then it'll start to cascade. And you know, we're still in the very early stages of this journey at Coco, but it's starting to happen and you just got to build that up over time. But um, starting with enterprise for geographically constrained companies, pretty challenging. And from what I've heard from VCs, you know, a lot of them just don't do hardware. What was that like for you to really you know, make sure you found the right VCs and to get investors who are okay with backing a company that does have a hardware element? It's super important to find investors who are actually really passionate and excited about the mission of the company and what you're trying to create. I think this helps too, because you know, I think when interest rates are zero and, and anyone would invest in hardware, you know, anything high growth, and then when that changes, you want to make sure that those investors are still committed to the mission and interest rates didn't like fundamentally shift their view of the world, right? Even if it just became a lot harder. And like the way we did that is I just really put an emphasis on working with VCs who were founders or are founders in some cases. So like I said, Sam Altman is a great investor, but he's also a great founder. Kevin Mahaffey, who I also mentioned, was a founder of Lookout. And so he's every time he's giving me advice, right? Here's the VC advice and here's, here's the founder perspective on it. And that just is super helpful. Same with, you know, Delian from Founders Fund. He started Varda and Varda's, you know, a hardware company as well. So there's a lot of similarities there, right? So he he'll, has a lot of, you know, appreciation for the kind of things that we have to solve. So really, really focusing on finding those sort of investors where, you know, hardware is within their, their kind of thesis and they're really committed to what you're trying to build because it is harder. And, you know, hardware companies also are more capital intensive. So you're a little bit more reliant on the macro, but think really good investors who are thinking really long-term about what you're trying to build will see through that. And the, like the market size for food delivery is so large that even in a higher interest rate environment, you can still justify investment in these sort of businesses. I think it's like consumer electronics companies or, or hardware companies that are kind of like a new market and not as understood that the kind of risk tolerance there just becomes like really, really difficult. But like I said before, if you went out and asked, you know, the top 20 potential customers of Coco, you know, I think like DoorDash, Uber, Domino's, McDonald's. If you go and asking these companies, hey, if, if somebody came up with a robot that reduced your costs 
even slightly of doing you know, delivery, it's would you use it? And they would all say yes. And they all have publicly said yes. They're all piloting this sort of technology and they've been doing so for a while, right? So it still makes sense as an investment thesis, but getting your strategy right is really important, which is why I go back to the billion dollar a year R&D approach. You know, it would be a lot scarier today. So I'm, I'm glad we started with creating a business. And final question, since we're almost up on time here, let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, can you just paint a picture for us for what that vision is? Yeah. So in step one is we want to scale food, which is what we're working on now. So more major cities, more large brands, and really solve food because food is super high frequency item that's getting delivered. And it's extremely difficult and expensive to do today. So it's where we have the most value. So after we start getting some penetration to major cities doing food, our costs should come down pretty dramatically. And that's when we'd like to expand into grocery, retail, pharmacy, all the other things that are currently cost prohibitive to be delivered on demand. You know, if you're ordering McDonald's, you need that to be delivered instantly because there's no alternative. It has to be, it's fresh, hot food, right? You can't get it next day. If you're ordering a shirt on Amazon, you can get it for free with your Prime subscription the next morning, or you could get it, you know, for $10, $15 of fees instantly. Most people are like happy to pay nothing and wait another day. And so you'd see a huge adoption of, you know, these sort of kind of everyday retail items that would happen much more locally if the cost came, came way down. So using our scale and our cost advantage from food, we'd like to go into that, into these other categories within these kind of urban markets. And if you do those two things, what I'm most excited about is you can pretty radically transform the city landscape. So you think how much space is dedicated to parking. There's more square footage for parking in the United States than there is for housing. A city like Los Angeles has a massive traffic problem. And traffic comes with, you know, emissions and making the city not as livable or not as walkable and safety. So I think you can shape the cities to be much more enjoyable for the people who live there if you solve a lot of the distribution problems that are that are being done with cars. And that's something we're working closely with the cities on. And so I think once you can deliver everything for, you know, under a dollar, basically, I think cities can start looking pretty different. Amazing. I love it. All right, Zach, we are up on time. So we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Coco Robotics. And I'm Zach Rash with Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it, Zach. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.